0: Today's sermon text is 1 Timothy chapter six, verses 11 through sixteen. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God. Who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.
1: I think if we were honest with ourselves, we probably would admit that we have trouble uh, completing things. Maybe we struggle with procrastination. Maybe we get easily distracted. We have five things to do. We get two done and a new list comes on and we forget about the ones we didn't, that we didn't do. It, it, it's difficult to finish things for many of us. Persevering is, is a challenge, and uh, if you don't believe me, then I think the owners of most gyms in America would believe me. Uh, one survey shows that 90% of people who sign up for a gym membership in the beginning part of the year are not exercising uh, 100 days later. It's hard to finish things. We struggle. Take Jonathan Edwards in his 70 resolutions. He was a 19-year-old theologian, 19-year-old man who would become one of the greater theologians of America, and he wrote down these 70 resolutions about what he resolved to do with his life. It's hard to just read them and to finish it, let alone actually do them. We struggle with it. We have, we have trouble completing things. And this, this matters. Because Christianity has been defined as a long obedience in the same direction. There's a a demand on persevering. And all of us have known or have heard of somebody who doesn't finish well. Maybe you've learned from them. Maybe you've respected them and they didn't finish well. What Paul's talking about in this passage is He wants Timothy, a young man, to persevere in the faith. He knows Timothy is a pastor of a very large cosmopolitan church. Wisdom is needed, strength is needed, nuance is needed to pastor these people, and perseverance is needed. And yet we know from from the writings that Timothy has been weak-ish, often prone to get sick, maybe a little timid, maybe... Apt to give way and to loosen his grip. And so so Paul is trying to encourage him. This is what it means to persevere. And he wants to encourage towards that end. That's why he says, did you notice at the beginning it says, but as for you, O man of God, he calls him this man of God. That's a title of honor. And that's significant, right? Moses was called a man of God. Samuel, Elijah, David. And he's calling Timothy, this young pastor. In other words, he's got a significant role to play as a pastor of this church. And yet even, even that responsibility, and he's called a man of God, and yet he still needs encouragement. Don't we need the same? Don't we need encouragement to finish up that task that the Lord has given to us? And so that's what he does here. You know, it's written to Timothy, but it's really written to all of us. This letter would have been read to the whole church. It wasn't just, this passage isn't just for ordination sermons. This is for all of us. What's it mean? What's it mean to pursue and to fight and to lay hold of and to keep the commandment unstained? These are all imperatives. They're all commands. What he's doing is he's trying to encourage us in four ways to not give up, particularly as the days move from one to the other. And he's given us four ideas. The first one is simply pursue holiness. Listen, you're not going to bump into it in the night you got to go after it. So, so there's the call to pursue holiness. Secondly, there's this call to fight the good fight. We don't look at fights as good things, but this is a good one. And, and, then, and then consider the new heavens. Lay hold of eternal life. That's another command to, to grab hold of it and then last to remember God. And we'll look at that last kind of charge in 13 to 16. So four encouragements if you're if you're kind of a categorical thinker, these four buckets we'll walk through. First, though, it's to pursue holiness. Look with me at verse eleven. In verse eleven he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and uh, gentleness. It, you see how there are two imperatives here. One's negative, one's positive. There's fleeing and pursuing. Old old scriptures might, old translations might say mortify and vivify, put off, put on. Th- this idea of fleeing these things and pursuing these things. Well, what are these things that he's calling Timothy to flee? Well, probably the things that the false teachers uh, of last week They weren't fleeing love of controversy, greed, pride, arrogance, divisiveness. Uh, They were traveling in these behaviors. And remember, they made shipwreck of their faith. But as for you, you're to be different. You're to persevere. So you have to flee these things. Now, we live in a pragmatic age. You probably want me to tell you how you're supposed to flee these things. He doesn't tell us. He just says run. That's the way it works, right? I mean, if you see a bear coming to you, nobody's going to say, okay, this is the time that you now run. You, you, you know it, right? There's a reflex in us that when danger approaches, that you run. It's a Joseph story. These things that may cause you and tempt you to slide away from God so that at the end of your life you'll wonder, where did the time go? Why did I waste my life? Uh, He's saying flee those things that would dilute your love for God. Flee them. Seek safety. There's nothing unmanly about running when confronted with a danger that is deeply threatening. But but you gotta you got to go somewhere. If you're fleeing, you've got to have a direction, right? So back in the 80s, many of you may remember Nancy Reagan, President Reagan's wife, had to just say no. It was kind of America's war against the increase of drug usage in our country. Just say no. Well, that makes sense, but you've got to say yes to something, right? So if you're fleeing something, you've got to be going somewhere, and that's what he tells us here. Flee these things, pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. What are these things? Well, they really make up the Christian faith. Let's not look at it as these Christian words that make no sense to us. They're simple enough for us to understand. Righteousness would be that right ordering of our life that we're dealing with people in a right manner. Godliness, that's just making decisions on life with God in view. That's just us thinking, what would God have me do in this? What would honor God in this? You know, the idea of faith. Faith is a a growing trust, not in the things of life, but in God. Love, love is simple enough. It's those acts of sacrifice that you make for others in the name of Christ. Steadfastness, that's just endurance, right? Perseverance. And, And then gentleness, that's just dealing with difficult people patiently. He's saying that we're to pursue these characteristics. If these characteristics are in your life and increasing, First Peter says you won't fail. You won't fall either. In other words, I think what he's driving at when he says flee and pursue, he's saying holiness, persevering in holiness to the end, you, you won't just happen upon it. it, it there's an intentionality. Uh, there's an urgency here. Flee and pursue. These are terms that, that kind of excite us with an urgency. Uh, no one becomes holy by accident you're called here to pursue it. There is human involvement using the means of grace that God has given to us to persevere, to persevere well. So when you look at your own life and, and you begin to wonder, oh, I, I do want to finish well in life, and so what are the things that you may need to flee? What are those things in your life? Is it lust? Is it materialism? Is it anger, unforgiveness, grudge-holding? What is it, when you look at your life, what are those things that kind of distract you from the narrow way? What are those things that you do and then you regret later doing, or you feel like this backwash of guilt or shame after doing it? It, it isn't always going to be just lust or pornography. It may be holding on to anger, not forgiven, But it, it begins to steal your heart against God. What are they in your life? You know, look at your life. Just stop at some point today and, and think through. My relationship with God. What are the things in there that, that are impeding progress? My relationship with my spouse or, or my family. Or what about my relationship at work? What am I doing at work that uh, I'm not doing at home, but I probably shouldn't be doing it at work? You know, Look through the categories of your life. And, and begin to take your own soul to task. What I mean by that is you, you take your soul out and you look at it and you say, where have you been? You know, What are you loving? What are you doing? So Richard Sibbs was an old English Puritan, and he said these words. He said, uh, to take the soul to task is the way of life, but we resist the light about ourselves. To deal roundly with yourself is the hard way. It's a narrow way, but it's the good way. In other words, it's hard for us to really look at our own lives and be willing to deal with the muck that we find in there. We don't want to do it. We'd rather think positively about ourselves. It's a hard way, but it's essential so that we can see what is in there. And, and let me tell you, for many of us, it's really difficult. But the gospel frees us to do it. The gospel allows us, you know, when you think of the gospel, Who can bring a, a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God knows who we are. He knows the dark corners of our heart that we don't let anybody else see. And yet he has still, in his mercy, provided a way that through faith in his Son, we can come to him and be reconciled and forgiven. He already knows that. So speak to him about it. Flee these things. What are they? But, but not just flee these things, we have to pursue something, right? The, this righteousness and godliness. What kind of moral progress have you made when you look at these issues? What kind of growth have you experienced? Are you dealing better? Now, I'm not just talking about last week. Last week maybe was a, was a mess for you. Uh, but, but that's why I always ask, you know, over the past year, uh, to what degree have you grown in wanting to be rightly related to people and seeking forgiveness and offering it? In, in what ways have you grown in your godliness, the way you think about relationships and business? In, in what ways have you been increasing in faith and love? That's why I ask you every year, do you love them more this year? I don't ask you every week, I ask you every year. In, in what ways are you, are you remaining steadfast and what ways are you increasing in gentleness? Maybe not running away from those people that are awkward, but maybe moving toward them. Th- there ought to be moral progress in holiness as the Spirit of God is moving in us. You know, Eugene Peterson wrote these words. He says, There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier... Generations of Christians would call holiness, we don't have a taste for that takes too long. It's too hard I just want to move fast and and what Paul's saying is to persevere. It isn't Christian perfectionism That's not what I'm speaking about here. I'm speaking of perseverance And, and friends We're going to need people to help us the Christian faith is not done. Well alone We need help why because we cannot see what's under our own noses but let me remind you, all your neighbors can. Yeah, they can see everything under your nose. You need them to help you point it out. Do you have someone that you're able to say, would you take a, a look at my own soul? And, and, and what things do you see I ought to flee? What things do you see me ought to pursue? You know, we need help because we have these blind spots and I find people tend to do one of two things. They tend to be over-scrutinous in their lives and they just are almost moving into self-loathing over the nature of their sins or they're overestimating over their goodness and they need help kind of getting a truer picture. Both can be disastrous and wrong. We just want to walk through, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He, he writes, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin deceives. It makes us think we're better than we are. It makes us think we're worse than we are. Uh, But rarely do we find that middle of the road without help. So the first encouragement Paul gives in terms of persevering is you have to be pursuing holiness. Now, I want to remind you that pursuing holiness doesn't save you. This effort towards growing in godliness, that is not what we have to do for God to say, oh, well done, good job, come on in. The pursuit of God is rather fuel for our own soul to love God. It doesn't make God love us more. No, God has chosen to love out of his own mercy. Our efforts at holiness actually help us understand him more, have greater faith in him, and love him. So that's the first thing, pursue holiness. Secondly, look with me at verse 12, just the first half. The encouragement is to fight the good fight of the faith. Now, this should remind you of what we've already covered in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we've already heard about the faith being warfare. Uh, Here, it's a fight. And notice what he says, fight the good fight of the faith. There's a definite article there before the word, which inclines us to think that Paul's saying that in this Christian life, it will be a fight. So Timothy, the pastor, guarding the good deposit, should expect in the declaration of the gospel that there will be antagonism. There will be struggle. There'll be a wrestling. And that's the nature of the gospel, right? The nature of the gospel does cause antagonism. I mean, think about it for a minute. It frustrates the really smart people. You know, they just think it's foolishness. How can you believe in these sorts of things? It frustrates the moralist, and uh, the moralist who really looks at his life as pretty good and cleaned up. It frustrates them because you're telling me someone from outside the universe has to come and do a work for me that I should be able to do with enough education and time. So it frustrates the moralist and the, and the one that's intellectual. It's going to be met with resistance, and he's simply telling Timothy, just be prepared for that. You have to. F- it's a good fight. It's a good fight because it's a good gospel. But just expect there to be a battle. We should expect the same. I mean, we're unique in the history of the church to have experienced so much. Kind of, you know, Christianity has a seat at the table. It's par- it's part of the ring of power. I mean, we for years and generations, it's able to speak in politics and culture. It may be changing a little bit now, but for the bulk of Christianity over all these years, it has known relatively few quiet times. It's a fight because the world is antagonistic to the declaration of God being God. Why? Well, we want to be God, and I think we all know that. But there's also, the, it's a good fight for our own faith. It's difficult. We've, we've battled, every one of us, if we were honest, battled disbelief sometimes, discouragement, discontentment. We battle it. I mean, all of a sudden you, you incur a great tragedy, a loss of a loved one. Maybe you have ongoing marital struggles that never seem to get better. What do you begin to do? Well, it, is God good? I, I mean, I've been praying to him. feels like I'm just screaming to the ceiling. Or maybe health crisis comes on. Financial issues. Uh, what do we do? It's no different than chapter 3 of Genesis. Is, did he really say that? I mean, can he really be trusted? I, I mean, what we do is we go to beginning to question, is God good to me? I've asked him for relief. I've gotten no relief. What's going on? And we begin to realize that faith becomes quite precarious. And Paul's saying, you've got to fight the good fight to keep trusting in God when circumstances seem to be going in ways contrary to what you think God should be doing in your life. It's a challenge for us. Many of us waver in this. And Paul's saying, we all waver, by the way, and we all face doubt. Never uh, for the one who says, you know, I've never doubted. I don't believe that. We all have periods of doubt. Doubt Doubt doesn't bother me at all. The doubt is always presumed to be walking along faith. That's the point of the fight. You're fighting, to okay, well, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Paul gives his own testimony in his second letter to Timothy. He's in jail. He is waiting probably to die, and he writes these words. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, Paul speaks about the good fight of faith. He's run the race. He's he's kept the course. He's completed. He's held on to faith. That's what he's calling us to do, to fight the good fight of faith. So, folks, do you understand and have you ever considered the Christian life to be a battle? If it's a new idea to you, then you can thank me later. You know, it's an important concept. The Bible is very clear. It is a fight of faith. It's not, you know, we, we look at our culture and we say, well, we've got some political troubles here and, you know, we've got some cultural troubles and, you know, we've got some economic storms coming and all those may in and of themselves be problems but they're temporal there's a bigger problem there's a bigger battle at play Paul gives word to it this way he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood or against cultures or or administrations or whatever we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you see what he's saying here? The, the, the problems that we have right now are legitimate, but they're temporal. And they're secondary to a bigger battle that the Christian faces. He says the same thing in Second Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, the, the book of... Um, so many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is uh, really probably one of the most read books in the 18th and 19th centuries, along with the Bible, written by John Bunyan. And it really is just an allegory over the Christian life. You know, Christian, you know, the man goes through the narrow gate. He's the Christian. The burdens fall off his back. And then the whole story up to the celestial city is about the travails and the troubles and the joys and the happiness, but the struggles that he faces along this life. The whole book is written to remind us this is a battle. Do you recognize it as such? This is why we can't, you know, John Calvin says, don't slacken your pace mid-course. We can't slow down now. We have to recognize that it's a battle. To what degree are you engaged in the battle? When you think about the efforts you make to worship God, the efforts that you make to read and understand God's word, the efforts that you make to engage fellowship, the patterns of prayer, to what degree are you engaging the battle? It's an important question to ask. You say, well, it's really hard. That's true. And This is why we need one another. This is another reason for the corporate nature of the church, that that he doesn't just kind of send us off into these special areas where we individually commune with God and we live out our faith. No, we do it together. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. This is another prison letter, by the way. He says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a good fight of faith, and we do it striving side by side. We're next to someone. Who's next to you striving in these difficult times? It is a battle. But God's sovereign over the battle. John Newton, in writing to one of his congregants, he was the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, uh, John Newton says, Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly indeed but surely. Many suns, showers, and frosts. Pass upon it before it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it seems dead, it's gathering strength at its root. Be humble, watchful, diligent in the means. What do means by that? What do I mean by mean? So, diligent in the means. That was kind of humorous. Diligent in the means, the means of grace, the means of prayer, the means of reading God's word, the means of fellowship with one another. We, we use these means in the fight of faith that we're not meant to just sit and let the battle be won. He's calling us to engage it. To what degree are you engaged in the battle? And I think about Gresham Machen. He was a Presbyterian scholar. He helped found uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. He was a Presbyterian thinker and scholar in the mid-20th century, and uh, he died in in the mid-20th century, and his tombstone's in Baltimore, and in Greek it says, faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. He he remained faithful, steadfast. Don't we want that said about us? Don't don't we want to be faithful to the end? When the end comes, don't we want to be found full of faith? I don't want to be teetering, wondering. I, I want to be found full of faith. It doesn't mean it will be easy. We just heard it's a battle, but I want to be found full of faith. That's what Paul's calling Timothy. I'm calling you. We have to pursue holiness and we have to engage in the fight. Who are you engaging in the fight with? Over what are you battling most in your life? Is it to cling to Christ? Or is it these other wars that are going on that they have value and they have a place Uh, But this is a bigger battle. Uh, Thirdly, he would say to consider the new heavens and the new earth. Look with me at the second half of 12. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, Timothy, you have to take hold of eternal life. That word, take hold, means grasp, seize, even violently grab a hold of eternal life. Now, you're probably wondering, it seems odd for Paul, an older man, to be telling Timothy, a younger man, to take hold of eternal life. We think of eternal life as something you get when you're you're dead. You You appreciate it when you get cancer, something like that. It's kind of off there, it's out there. We don't really think about it. It's not something that's a a present idea, and yet this is in the present tense. So take hold of eternal life. Why is he saying this? Well, I I submit to you that Timothy is timid. He's perhaps weak. He's facing the, the factions of the church. He is maybe loosening his grip. Maybe he's wavering a little bit, and Paul's trying to stir him up towards greater faith. He's saying take hold, but notice what he says. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called to which you were called. In other words, your grasping eternal life is not simply in your grip, but God has called you to it. This is a reminder to us that salvation is by the electing mercy of God. And none of us, as I just shared about our blind spots, none of us, if you're a Christian here, I would argue that the Bible doesn't say that you're brighter than those who aren't Christian. I'm sorry. Uh, The Bible would encourage us to see that the reason you're a Christian is because God has opened your eyes. He called you. You heard him calling you. How else would we come to an understanding of our absolute brokenness that we need someone, a Messiah from God, promised to save us? And nobody would get there on their own. Nobody would. People might be self-loathing, but they wouldn't be necessarily looking to God for help. And and if they did, I don't know if they'd see the help as a Messiah coming to take upon Himself their sins. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian isn't to be a moralist. It's not to be a churchgoer. It's not to be trying as hard as you can. To be a Christian is to be recognizing, uh, like that man in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. We recognize that we have nothing but the need to ask God for mercy. What we bring to God is our sin. That's all, just our sin. And we are met by a God with mercy and grace that is willing to forgive us our sins through faith in his son that he provided for us. This is the eternal life that he came to bring. This is what he's saying, take hold of it. Timothy, you're already already called by God. You're certain to receive it. He's trying to stir him up, not just to the future, Enjoyment of something, but the present day enjoyment of something. You do realize that those of you in Christ are in a way walking in eternal life right now. That's what the Bible seems to indicate when Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate you from the love of God. That covenantal relationship that God has with the believer who's come by faith, it's a solid. We cannot be separated. Even death itself cannot render apart us from God. Don't we see the same thing in Colossians chapter 3? He says, you're dead. Your life is now hid with Christ and God. Your life is secure. There is no. See, this is what theologians call the overlapping of the ages. We live in a present evil age. The the evidence of depravity is clear for all of us. Just read the paper. We live in the present evil age. We see sin. We see misery. We see death. We see disease. We see fracture in relationships. But think about what's happening. When Christ came in the flesh, he broke into the present evil age. So the new age broke into this present evil age. That's what Jesus said. The first thing he said in the Gospel of Mark is, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the good news. Jesus saying, I'm bringing my kingdom. I am a king. I'm bringing a kingdom. It's now here. And then he begins to prove the kingdom, right? He starts raising dead people. He starts giving sight to the blind. He starts giving speech to the mute. He starts reversing the effects of a present evil age. He even says in Luke 11, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom has come to you. He's saying the kingdom's here. The new age is breaking in. But even more so, it's the role of the Spirit that lets us know heaven is working back into our age. Because we can be convicted of sin, and because we understand the greatness of God, and we convert by faith, this is all the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's the one that convicts. The Spirit's the one that comforts. The Spirit's the one that um, converts. And the fact that these things are happening, and people are coming to faith, That's the inbreaking of heaven into this present evil age. And so he's saying, take hold of it. You're living in it now. Live in it now like you will always have it because there will never be a day when you're separated from God. It will be the continuity for the believer will be sweet. The continuity of translating from the flesh to the spirit, from this age to the new age, the continuity is there. And he's saying, take hold of this eternal life now. To what degree do you take hold of it? Uh, To what degree do you enjoy what you possess by faith? Is eternal life for you something that is kind of a get-out-of-jail card if you get diagnosed with some terminal illness? Is that the way you see the new heavens and the new earth when we'll be with God? It's not some cherub experience. It's it's on this new earth with God, reigning, reigning, working, enjoying the gifts that he's given to us. To what degree do you lay hold of that and revel in it? I mean, ponder it with me for a minute. I mean, if it is true, I mean, think about it. All wrongs righted. All brokenness mended. You know, all losses regained. I mean, think about it. it, it it's... Uh, People want utopia all the time. Revolutionaries always seek utopia. Uh, We want that, and think about it coming in perfect measure. To what degree do you grab a hold of that? Jonathan Edwards, have one more quote from him. He wrote a lot, and I quote him a lot. Um, He said these words, and I, I just want you to think of how often you think of this idea of laying hold. Am I really walking in the beauty of eternal life right now? He says, labor to be much acquainted with heaven. If you're not acquainted with it, you will not be likely to spend your life as a journey to it. We won't see our life as a pilgrimage. You will not be sensible of its worth, nor will you long for it, unless you're much conversant in your mind with a better good it will be exceedingly difficult to you to have your hearts loosed from these things and be ready to part with them for the sake of that better good. In other words, it'll be hard to die. Labor, therefore, to obtain a realizing sense of a heavenly world, to get a firm belief in its reality, and to be very conversant with it in your thoughts. What he's saying here, I think, is simply this, that we need to consider it. We need to think about it. But here's the rub. To lay hold of something, you've got to let go of something, right? It's the same thing in marriage, leave and cleave. You can't cleave if you don't leave. And what he's saying here is, what are the things in this world are we laying hold of right now? What are the, the shiny trinkets that I talk about that prevent you from thinking about that eternal life that he has promised us? It's been promised to us. We've been called to it so as to help us persevere. But if we're not thinking about it, guess what? It doesn't help us persevere. But, but what are those things that we have to lose ourselves from? You know, I think about our own solar system. The sun is a big ball of fire. It, it's really, it occupies us. During the day, it's laid out. Now, there's a lot of other balls of fire out there, and they're hundreds of times bigger than our sun. Our sun is relatively small in relationship to these other stars. But we don't see them during the day. We don't see any of the stars. We see them at night when the sun, you know, when we're on the other side of the, looking the other way of the sun but we don't see them during the day because the, the the proximity of our little sun blinds us from these glorious bigger suns they are real and they are out there and they're far greater than our sun but we don't see them but they're there i wonder if this is the way it is with eternal life for us We don't see it. We're so occupied with that which is in proximity to us, closer, maybe of lesser value. And we don't see the glory of those sons that God has created for us. Is that the same with you in eternal life? Are there things we need to consider loss so that we might see the gain of Christ. That's what Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 3. You know, Paul has got all these badges on his chest. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee as to the law blameless. He kind of gives out those, those little badges, and he says, I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. He is not saying they're, un, they're not valuable, and he's not disparaging of them. They just don't compare with what he has in Christ. And there's that loosening that Edwards talks about, to gain Christ. What are the things that you need to let go of? Uh, What are the the things in your world that are so distractive to you that for you to sit and give thought to this promised life from God that it doesn't get any shelf space in your mind? You know it will. You know, we're all one call away from getting our pans rattled. Just one call away, you get one call. Imagine what, what that call might be in your life you get this afternoon. All of a sudden, this is now a front-burner issue. Let's not wait for the call. Let's move towards it. Let's lay hold of it. It's gonna help us persevere. If we really understand what we're marching towards, we'll lay hold of it, because we'll need to. And, and, and And then look at the last encouragement he gives in 13 to 16. This is where I think Paul becomes a little more pastoral with Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free, that's the imperative, uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. So what's Paul doing here? I think Paul, he's saying, okay, so Paul's penning the letter, right? And He's saying, I charge you in the presence of God. So Paul sees himself at least occupying a space where God's presence is, right? God's presence is there. He's penning the letter. He expects Timothy to read the letter, and he reads, I charge you in the presence of God. So Timothy is to see himself in the presence of God. In other words, we're to see God, as Levi even prayed, uh, God is in his creation, but he is not the creation. So God's presence is there. And I think we see it because he says, who gives life to all things? God is present, giving life to us. God is present, sustaining our lives. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. Your hairs are numbered. He gives you breath. I mean, grab this thought for with me for a minute. He, you're not a clock that he creates and winds up and then lets you run. He, the truth of scripture is he is always giving you life. He's always giving you breath. Right now he's sustaining us. You know, John Calvin said something profound in his commentary. He says, we and all the creatures do not, strictly speaking, live, but only borrow life from him. I mean, that's, that's a big thing right there. If this is true, you're borrowing life right now. You, don't, you didn't earn somehow you know, 76 years of life. You're bar- we're all growing indebted to God, the creator of all things. We are growing indebted to him because we keep borrowing life from him. No being in this room is self-existent. You, do not, you didn't choose where you'd be born. You didn't choose the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, the height of your body the brain capacity you have, the height. You didn't choose any of it. None of us are self-existent. We're all contingent beings borrowing life. from. Right now, you are borrowing as I am borrowing breath. Isn't that incredible? God is the giver of life. He can sustain us to persevere. People say, oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. He absolutely will. He will. Yeah, don't ever buy that. He will give you more than you can handle so that he can come and give you the life to sustain you in the trial. That's what he's doing. He's drawing us to understand our true condition, which is dependent upon a good God. He will give us more than we can handle so that we go to him and then he strengthens us. So you see the presence of God encouraging perseverance. Then you see the promise of God to send the Son. Notice what he says there, that Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, who in his testimony made the good confession before Pilate. Why is he bringing up Jesus in this confession before Pilate? Well, most likely because Jesus endured. He persevered. Remember how the good confession is there, both in that verse and the one just two or three verses prior with Timothy? Jesus made a good confession. He persevered unto death was raised and now the hope, the trust, the belief, he's gonna come again. I want you to know so it's at the proper time. So the return of Jesus, Jesus came the first time uh, to bear our sin and to bear our guilt and to bear our shame that through faith we might be reconciled to God. That is how we become Christians. We see our need and we reach out to God and say, I need the Messiah that you have provided for me. There is no other way to God other than through Christ. That's the only way through faith in Christ. Nothing you're going to bring other than your sin. He came the first time to bear sin. He's going to come the second time to judge the living and the dead, to right all wrongs, to make all peace, and to bring the fullness of salvation. As I said, the overlapping of the ages, we are experiencing tastes, foretastes of what we will have. He will bring it to its fullness but at the proper time. What I want you to see, why that phrase is so important, is time is not just kind of lumbering along under its own power. There is a sovereign plan. God has a proper time that he will bring back the Son to establish his kingdom over all things. We don't have to fear time. Hope he comes back next week. It will be a proper time. It'll be the right time that we can trust him for. And that's Meant to encourage us to persevere. You know, when the disciples heard Jesus was going away, when Jesus was going to leave them, what did Jesus say to them? They began to get nervous, right? I would have. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't, don't, don't. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you? Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. I'm coming back. It's that encouragement to persevere. I know he's going to come back. But then, but then last, not just the promise of God, notice the character, the sovereignty of God in these last seven-fold description of God. I mean, when you look at this, he is the blessed and only sovereign. Blessed means good. He's a good and sovereign God. He's the only one with inherent authority. All of us may have some measure of authority. It's all delegated. It'll all be lost. Not him. He has all authority, and it's in him. It's his. It wasn't delegated to him. It won't be removed from him. He's sovereign over all things. But he's also king of kings and lord of lords. So over all human rule he stands. Over all angelic rule he stands. Over all demonic rule he stands. He is, who alone has immortality. Uh, Death has no grip on him. Death is subject to him. He's the only one who exists in and of himself. In him is life, all life. No one else has life in themselves. We just heard, we borrow it from him, who is the giver of all life. And he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen, no one has ever, he's totally other. You couldn't know him unless he reveals himself to you. And that's why Paul goes and says to him, be honor and dominion forever and ever. This is kind of God that the Bible is holding forth, the father of our Messiah. So this is to know the character of God is to persevere. I mean, you you may be flagging in faith right now. You may be overwhelmed by the political situation we're in, the economic situation we're in, or maybe it's something more personal to you, and yet you've just been introduced to this God who gives you life and sustains life, this God who has, has a proper time appointed where he's going to bring all things to bear in perfection, this same God who is sovereign over these things. I mean, many of you are, many of the men in this church at least are studying Daniel. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says about him. I mean, he is the sovereign one over all things. He raises up kings, he sets kings down, changes the hearts of kings like courses of rivers. This is the kind of God that we have. It's the kind of God I'm holding up for you to say, persevere in him. Can you make it on your own? Not a chance. But this is. Paul telling Timothy, pursue holiness. fight. It's a good fight because there's a crown of righteousness. Consider, grab hold of that which is yours. Enjoy the possession of eternal life to which you've been called. And for those of you who haven't sensed the call, maybe you haven't heard the call of God, maybe you don't know where you stand with God, then ask a member of this church how to be greater aware of that or come forward to speak with me. But don't, don't let days become weeks, and weeks become months, and months become years, and never involve yourself to ask these, because they will. Those days will turn into years, and it'll, it'll happen really fast. Well, let's take a moment and ask God for grace. I, I'm, just a, I'm a contingent being like you, but let's ask the one who is is contingent lists and ask him for grace to understand and walk in light of these things. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.